This episode is supported by Canyon Coffee, a Los Angeles-based roastery making coffee with exclusively single origin and certified organic beans. Check out their beautiful new shop in Echo Park, Los Angeles, serving delicious items such as fig leaf lattes and lemonade toasts. If you haven't tried Canyon yet, order a fresh roasted bag at canyoncoffee.co and enter winesplaining at checkout for 15% off your first order. And buy Botanica, a woman-owned restaurant and market in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, specializing in farmer's market cooking and natural wine. Find their recipes online at botanicamag.com and shop their curated pantry boxes at shop.botanicarestaurant.com. I had become a little frustrated, too, with just being, you know, certain circumstances of of being a woman in this industry. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to say it loud. This is like a woman-owned business. It's got my name on it. It's pretty clear. Welcome to Winesplaining, the podcast that peels back the layers of the women's journeys that are shaping the wine business. Denhan, and I'm excited to present today's guest, Martha Stuman. It's no big secret that I'm a huge fan of our winesplaining guest today, Martha. She is a California winemaker and business owner, making, in my opinion, some of the most interesting and delicious wines in the state. I first tasted her wines in 2017, just after opening Vinavore, and became an instant fan and an avid supporter ever since. Martha's approach is hands-on in all aspects of the winemaking process, with a fierceness that is surely attributed to her great success. Yet in the same breath, she is super down-to-earth, has totally chill vibes, and is absolutely lovely to talk to. Welcome, Martha Stuman, to Winesplaining. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that beautiful introduction. (laughs) (laughs) There's actually something really important um, I've been dying to discuss with you. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, my DM just started blowing up with all these people sending me one of your posts. Uh, Wine corks are fruit repellent. Uh, We need to know more about this. And literally everybody sent it to me like, did you know this? Did you know this? Yeah, this is something actually um, I have to say I learned as well. (laughs) So um, we have a really small team at Martha Stuman Wines. And I think this just is one of those things that illustrates illustrates the beauty of teamwork. Um, Our new digital content manager, Alyssa, brought this to me and was like, can we put this on social media? I was like, yeah, as long as you do your due diligence and make sure it's totally fact-checked and everything. And it was, it makes sense though. I mean, after, it's just something I had never thought about. And she said, oh yeah, I learned about it because one of my, I was looking at these fruit bowls that had a cork lid and it was like, or we could just recycle our wine corks and use this for it. So, um, yeah, news to me, I feel like I had heard, I mean, I've been in the business now since 2006. So I thought I'd heard everything you could and maybe shouldn't always do with wine corks by this point, but not that one. Yeah, this is uh, far from a kindergarten school project uh, with a wine cork. But yeah, it was obviously very life-changing for a lot of people because they really felt like I either should know or needed to know. And uh, thank you. Thank you for your contribution. Yes. Well, you're very welcome. And, you know, props, props go out to Alyssa to fi- for finding that gem. <laughs> Excellent. 
So we want to talk about your story. Uh, like I said, you know, you, you're one of my favorite winemakers. Um, so let's go ahead and start at the beginning um, or the beginning, your beginning. Uh, where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Sebastopol in Sonoma County, which uh, nowadays is really a pretty well-known wine um, region in Sonoma County. And um, But I didn't come from a winemaking family. In fact, I um, really was only first exposed to wine winemaking and viticulture um, after college when I went to work on a small farm and learning center in Tuscany. And um, yeah, and then it was kind of one of those, you know, I, I loved where I grew up. It was, it was pretty rural and I grew up with some apple trees and we pressed apple juice every summer with my family. But it was pretty, you know, it was, it was pretty working class when I grew up there in Sebastopol. A little bit of hippie meets farmers and... Um, everyone peacefully coexisted very, very well. Um, Did you have a hippie family? Not entire. It's funny. I say I don't have a hippie family, but I took a good look at my dad the other day. Uh, My parents came over to visit and my dad has really long kind of graying reddish hair now. And he's wearing a Grateful Dead shirt. (laughs) Okay, maybe they're a little bit, but he was never... I don't know. I, I think they they were never total hippies in the 70s. My mom did, though. Uh, she moved out to San Francisco from Jersey, and um, she started working in the, you know, pr- pretty, uh, the seedling phase, I'd say, of the natural foods um, industry. She worked for a natural foods distributor and um, some a natural foods grocer in San Francisco in, in the 70s. So they definitely had some of the earthy vibes, but, you know. They weren't wearing bell bottoms and all that. <laughs> fair, fair. So you spent a lot of your childhood just outdoors and in nature and kind of being wild and free. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it's something I think about a lot because there's so many screens in our lives, and I really didn't. I really didn't have screens in my life for for a good chunk of it. I, um, you know, we we had a old TV. My parents weren't necessarily anti. I mean, I think I think they like figured out they got a quote on what it would cost to uh, get cable down our, our dirt road. And they're like, Nope, <laughs> too expensive. Okay. So it wasn't necessarily like, you know, uh, we're going to die on this hill of, of no TV or anything like that. We just were rural. We were rural and grew up on, you know, about two acres and I played with my brothers and built tree forts and all that. So yeah, it was a pretty, pretty wonderful, natural style upbringing. I love it. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard somebody just call it like flat out screens. At first I was like, you mean like no window screens on your porch? (laughs) Screens. Yeah. At the time, I guess the only screen was TV and then came computers and we had like dial up way, way after, you know, everyone was modernized. So I do remember we had this old TV that we could, we had bunny ears. And if we put the metal blinds down behind it in like a very specific way, we could get one channel. And we tried to like, we would like, you know, mainline Saturday morning cartoons if we could get, if we could get the, the static off the TV. But yeah, it was, it was pretty, uh, and, and we had a beta tape, like beta tape player long, long after that was very old. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm going to circle back and say maybe you were raised in a hippie environment. <laughs> yeah. I know. We all think we are raised um, in like an average normal environment until you start like getting out in the world. And you're like, yeah, actually, OK, it was a little different. <laughs> I had all the screens. Uh, but so what did you want to be when you grew up during this time? Um, I remember I actually wanted to be um, 
an architect was one of the main things I wanted to be when I was growing up. I <laughs> I loved Legos and I loved like my tree fort and building forts and designing things, um, designing spaces. And so, um, but my dad was a builder and you know, they were very encouraging. So I don't want this story to sound bad. Uh, but he was like, nah, Martha, it's just another form of a starving artist. And then <laughs> so discouraged me from becoming an architect. And then um, my grandfather's um, mom, my grandfather on my mother's side ran a restaurant in New Jersey. And my grandfather on my father's side ran a bar restaurant in San Francisco. So I was discouraged from getting into restaurants, which was the other love was food. And so I was like, I guess eventually I ended up in a winery, which is, it's basically, it's, it's in the same vein. <laughs> Not a lot of money to be made, work really long hours, you know, around food and wine, but it's, it's pretty joyous too. I mean, yes, definitely more of the artist lifestyle, the struggling artist lifestyle, uh, <laughs> Than I think an architect. <laughs> I know, I know. I was like, Dad, I really should have just gone with that one. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that you weren't exposed to wine after college. So which college did you go to before you got into wine? Yeah, I um I went to UCLA. I was debating. There were, you know, my my college options. Um, I think were well, I know, we're a little bit financially limited. It was something where I was putting myself through college. My dad hadn't gone to college. My mom had. Um, but just the way we grew up, it was something that, you know, if I wanted to go, I was going to have to figure out myself. And so went to decided to stay in state and um, also wanted to see what, you know, living in a bigger city would be like coming from small town Sebastopol. So yeah, I, I had thought about going to the East Coast or, or something like that, but just the looming, the looming debt, even with scholarships, deterred me from doing that. So um, went to UCLA and then started studying geography. I feel like a lot of people who get into winemaking I've met were geography majors because this it's this just like kind of generalist field and it's a combination of all of these um, disciplines and it's it's a really fun thing to study. But but within that um, was studying environmental studies and. Um, and uh, agriculture, traditional agriculture systems. So that kind of started leading down the path of eventually going to this small farm in Learning Center in Italy to see how, how, this, how, a, how a traditional closed loop farm would work. So. so you were, so after you graduated with a geography degree, you went to Italy or was this like during yeah, right, right UCLA? Yeah, right after, right after I finished at UCLA didn't really know what I wanted to do and thought, you know, I'd studied also, I had gotten an Italian minor because my um, grandfather, my uh, maternal grandfather was Italian. And, you know, like many people and uh, immigrants in certain generations lost the language. Um, my great grandparents spoke it. So I wanted to relearn kind of the language for our family and, um, and also just wanted to, uh, you know, avoid... <laughs> getting a getting a desk job you know when you're 22 fresh out of college so I wanted more adventure than that so yeah yeah my my family's Italian as well and and my great grandparents are the last that speak it and I did not honor them like you did though and I have not learned Italian so good on you well thanks I mean there were definitely selfish reasons I was like sure I want to go to Italy and live there and drink wine and eat food and all that so can't say it was totally noble 
So what was the what was the job? I mean, what was the the justification for heading off to Italy at 22? Yeah. So I was I became very passionate about um, agriculture and learning about you know how are the history of agriculture and and you know what industrialized agriculture has done. Um, some of the benefits of some of these traditional systems, you know, polycultural systems versus monocultures. Um, I think we're so much more aware now than, you know, we were in, I was learning all this from 2002 to 2006. I was taking courses, you know, part of the curriculum was on climate change and the science behind it. And so I think I got a good dose of, of what we're still talking about today you know, regenerative agriculture has been around for a long time, and we've started to see it come into the mainstream uh, discussion, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, But for me, I I really wanted to see some of these um, examples working. So how do animals contribute to perennial crops? Um, How can we use you know, natural forest systems and those boundaries between natural forest systems and more um, agricultural uh, areas to, to benefit one another. So um, all of that was really, really, really fascinating to me. I had read some statistic that at the time, um, 11% of the population, and this was like, yeah, circa two, 2006, so this is an old statistic, but 11% of the population of um, Italy were farmers, whereas in the U.S. it was just shy of 3%. So it was, you know, just that tells you something about the number of participants in, the, in a society that are farming and then also probably the size of each of those farms. Um, so I thought it was a good place to try to, and with a, with a history of, of um, food and, um, you know, the slow food movement was really... Um, pretty present in Italy. It hadn't really come quite to the U.S. at this point and seeing people really, um, you know, really embracing and trying to protect uh, native or uh, like traditional crops and um, more heirloom varieties. You know, at this farm I went to work on, they had a um, uh, an, an endangered farm species preservation program, which we don't think of, you know, domesticated farm animals is becoming endangered, but they, they do, you know, certain species over time have not been as productive as others, or, you know, we've focused on, on quantity, maybe then quality or the suitability of, for instance, you know, how kind of how drought tolerant are grazing animals, certain, certain species that are heritage actually need, you know, less, less green grass, for instance. So, um, all of those things have contributed. What part of Italy were you in at this point? I was in I was in Tuscany. Tuscany. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And what part is your family from? Uh, from Abruzzo. Abruzzo. Okay. Yeah, which I've actually never been to, and that's one of one of the things the goals is to is to go visit Abruzzo and see some of my family that still lives there that I don't know. I spent a week in Abruzzo, and it was really magical. Amazing for a wine trip. Yeah, it's it's that's and you don't hear a lot of people from Abruzzo, and it's. I feel like it's one of the unsung kind of destinations of Italy. It's not as like famous as all the others, but there's so much lovely. Totally. Lovely stuff yeah. And about. I was just reading too about the number of national parks in Abruzzo as well is it's, yeah. they have a really strong national or 
you know, national park presence in Abruzzo. So that's cool. You got to go. Yeah. Uh, so how long were you um, in Tuscany then? I was in Tuscany um, for about five months right after college and then moved back to L.A., started working for a solar panel installation company, didn't love my job, decided I was like, how can I get how can I get back to to Italy? And I had had an experience. So this program, this farm program, this internship, it's um, you specialize in one thing. So they put you in one area of the farm, um, whether that's, you know, vegetable farming, uh, vineyard and olive orchard, which is what my role was, um, you know, the animali intern that cares for the animals. So I had been exposed to viticulture and winemaking, but I still wasn't sure. I don't think I, I wasn't, I didn't know anything about the wine world and that, that, that that was actually a viable career that, you know, people make wine for a living <laughs> really was what I needed to hear. So, so yeah, eventually made myself, made my way back into the wine world um, and started a, apprenticing and interning in various places. Okay. So you went to Italy, kind of fell in love with the, the farming and the culture, moved back, had this solar job that was just meh. Mm-hmm. And then you, you made your way back to Italy or from I, there in, I, in viticulture? Or? I actually got a job in Sonoma County, um, outside of Healdsburg, working as a harvest intern, um, for Chalk Hill Winery there. It was actually the first, um, place that I was exposed to, um, native fermentations, which is not, you know, Chalk Hill is a pretty classic producer and, um, modern producer, uh, uses a lot of enological tools. So it's not something you normally think of when you think of them, but it was the first place I was exposed to native fermentations, which was cool. Um, and just the, the joy, I really loved all the people I worked with there. And so, um, it got me pretty hooked. The assistant winemaker at the time, this woman, Jordan Fiorentini, kind of took me under her wing and I ended up working there for two different vintages. And she, she was really, she, she really advocated for me and said, you know, even though you didn't go to winemaking school, I can teach you, you know, I can teach you, you can move up in this company. And, you know, the powers that be were, the owner was kind of stalling and wanted somebody with a degree. So I ended up um, getting the job long-term, but I'd already made other plans to travel. So I went to Australia after that. And um, Really, really quickly yeah. before we get to Australia, um, could you just maybe describe native fermentation and maybe like the importance of it for people that might not understand like what native fermentation means? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, long before we had uh, laboratory-selected yeast, um, Grape skins actually, uh, grapes are grapes are pretty magical. Um, so the grape skin itself has this kind of waxy bloom. Um, if you've ever um, seen a grape just growing on a vine, it, it, it yeah, it kind of looks almost like a little cloudy, like you could smudge it off. Um, and in that waxy bloom, on that waxy bloom, there's a lot of uh, yeast and bacteria. I mean, there are yeast and bacteria all around us in the air. Um, and so if you crush a grape, um, there is enough sugar in it that it will just start fermenting on its own, both um, because of the yeast um, and bacteria on the grape skin, and then also just the ambient yeast in, in the air. And grapes are pretty special. You know, they have enough sugar, um, but they also have a good amount of acidity 
Um, and that is a key, key factor to grapes because it means that um, only certain select yeast species can survive that amount of acidity and can survive um, alcohol as it builds up in a fermentation and sugar is converted to alcohol. So, um, so even though there's, you know, millions of different yeast species in the air, eventually uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae is the only yeast that can survive in grape must over time because it just is resilient and it, and it can, um, you know, it can live in high acid environments and it can live in high alcohol environments and it loves converting sugar into alcohol. So, so yeah, that is compared to, so that's kind of the natural way that uh, a native fermentation would take off the way wine has been made for, you know, millennia. Um, and um, in more modern terms, people have taken some of those yeast species from, you know, uh, plated them from nature and um, selected them for their performance. So, um, you know, there's many, many different types of Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Um, and one in particular might be able to ferment to higher degree alcohol. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, that, that was a very popular selected laboratory yeast that was grown because we had really high alcohol wines. Um, and, or, you know, there's New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Certainly the grapes give it that really specific character, but the selected yeast that many people use there on top of it really emphasizes some of those gooseberry sort of notes. Um, cat pee. Cat pee, yeah. Cat pee. <laughs> the cat pee. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so there's, there's the difference. And I think the one thing uh, to note about native fermentations is you get a real, especially early on in the fermentation before alcohol builds, um, y- you get a real, I guess, chorus of voices contributing. So all different types of yeast and bacteria are um, creating byproducts. And I think that adds to complexity. Whereas with selected yeast, you know, you would go in usually and you would um, add enough sulfur dioxide to your must to kill all the native yeast. And then you'd add a specific strain and it's more just a singular voice. So, um, you know, one isn't like for your health better than the other. They're just different, different approaches to, to the winemaking craft. Yes. Thank you for breaking that down. So yes, most natural wine is native yeast. But anyway, moving on. Uh, so from there, you go to Australia. Mm-hmm. Why and what took you to Australia? If I'm honest, I feel like there's like the the, the real version. I had fallen in love with one of my fellow interns <laughs> when I was working. There's a lot of that. I mean, all the different. It's uh, You're working together in this really um, incredible kind of unique environment where during harvest you, you know, you might work 14, 18 hour days and it's very hands-on and it's very sensual. I mean, winemaking itself is incredibly sensual. It's like all these smells and tastes. And so, um, I think there's a lot of room for both platonic bonding and romance. And so, yeah, I had, I had fallen in love with a, an Australian, young Australian winemaker and, he suggested we go, he's from Perth, and he suggested we go work in um, Margaret River for a harvest, and Margaret River is incredible. It's kind of like a, I don't know, it felt to me like what I imagine California felt like in the 70s, where it's just like, 
lots of, you know, the ocean's right there, a little more relaxed pace, fewer people, but um, kind of, kind of earthy and, you know, you can do anything you want sort of attitude. Yeah. Free, just free, just free free. flowing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then from there, you know, uh, the two of us were drinking, I think it was Alsatian wines, but we were like, we want to explore the either like uh, Alsace or German Riesling, some sort of these kind of like more uh, cool climate um, areas. And so we ended up going to the Mosul and working there. Um, and part of so the ways. two of you went together. Yeah, we went together to go to um, a producer called Heyman Lobenstein. And two of our friends um, also decided to come work there. That's another thing I feel like there's this really amazing, you know, when you're apprenticing at all these different places, a lot of it was just driven by what are you drinking? What's inspiring? Um, at least for me in the early days, it was um, like, what tastes great? Okay, let's go figure out how they make it. It wasn't it wasn't much more complicated than that. Um, but at Heyman Lovenstein, they they were pretty uh, pretty hands off producer. They worked in these really um, still work in these old Roman um, traditional Roman terraces in the Mosul, which was incredibly eye opening. I was mostly in the vineyards, so got a lot of vineyard experience. But they're very hands off in the winery. I mean, all. Everything. Yeah, native fermentation. They include a little uh, botrytized fruit in their still wines, which I thought was really interesting. So, do you want to say, wait, say what? That yeah, is yeah. So, botrytis is, um, it's a, it's a type of, uh, like it's called noble rot. Um, and so it's a, it's a rot that can infect grapes. Um, in, in certain conditions, it's, um, usually in well aerated conditions and in places that are, 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 are cool, like Germany, it can form. Um, but y- you do need to, it can also cause other types of spoilage, other types of rot. So it's not like all botrytis is, is good. Some of it is, is not that desirable. So I learned kind of how to identify and sort out good clusters from bad clusters and where those would grow. But it, it, um, it's what's used in Sauternes. So a lot of dessert wines is usually what people have reserved but botrytized fruit for. Um, but he was, you know, allowing some of it just to be mixed into all of his parcel. He would ferment by parcel rather than necessarily the traditional way that, that Germans would, you know, ferment based on sugar level. Um, so that was really eye opening to me. And it gives this kind of like, I don't know, not quite cheese rind character. You're probably better at describing this than I am, Coley, but, uh, it's a really unique flavor in wines and, I think really incredible, um, but you don't see it very much in still wine. Or like I mean, botrytis to me is like usually kind of more like that nail polish mm-hmm. kind of smell. But yes, there can be like this like cheese wax or cheese rind yeah, character kind as of well. Waxy. Sometimes it smells to me like otter pops that have like had freezer burn or something. Like it's like a very I don't know, but it's but in a good way, whatever that means. Um, so. Yeah, it was just, it was again kind of this, just one, I felt like I was getting like example after example during all of these apprenticeships that, you know, yeah, there are rules sort of, but, you know, you can experiment and you can break them and create things that are beautiful and kind of trying to understand why those rules are in place in the first place, I think was good for me. 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, you know, these apprenticeships really shaped you. So from Mosul, where did you go next? Gosh, this is good. I'm glad we're going down memory lane because I <laughs> I realize how sometimes I'm for, I forget these things. So after the Mosul, oh, I had... Um, I had applied to um, UC Davis for their um, graduate program. And that part of what had, you know, it, it takes some time to apply and be accepted and for the um, program to start. So part of what kind of spurred that was this experience that I had had at Chalk Hill where the owner, where the winemaker who was really there day to day, um, really believed in me and, and, um, you know, wanted me to continue working there and move up as the assistant winemaker. But the owner really wanted somebody with, with a UC Davis degree. And I can't say that that was the only thing that, but I, I thought to myself and maybe not fully aware of it at the time, but it's kind of like, okay, (laughs) I think as women in our respective industries, like just the, you know, just come fully, fully equipped, like come to the table in such a way that people, you know, can't say no, or they might have excuse after excuse and you can just shut them down because you are so incredibly prepared. So that, I don't know, that and the fact that I, you know, was having these conversations that were pretty technical in nature you know, we would, we would all be in the lab at, at Chalk Hill. And, and I felt like I couldn't fully follow along. And while I could have learned that outside of school, I just, I, I thrive in like a structured school environment. So that makes sense. So, so you went from Germany to back, back to UC Davis. Did, did the Australian boy follow or was that, that no, he, in- <laughs> he was trying to get a job here, but it was right, you know, after the financial crash and nobody was hiring foreigners and he actually ended up getting a job in, um, in Washington state. Um, and so, you know, it was closer than Perth, but, um, yeah, we ended up, you know, long distance growing apart. And so so that was as things do yeah as things do um it's funny winemaking wise too we were starting to diverge a little bit he went a little bit more down the classic path and and I went a little bit more towards the you know what I'd grown up with which was sprouts growing on the countertop <laughs> you're a hippie just, a just hippie. own it what can no screens Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a, a you know starcrossed, uh, ill-fated lovers. He he was commercial yeast, and I was native. And yeah, exactly. we had to move on. Splitting. Okay, so you're at UC Davis. Um, yeah, I'm very curious about the culture of that. I mean, we all know it's a great enology school, and if you don't know, it, I mean, it's a viticulture enology winemaking school in California, um, and one of you know kind of the leading place that you go here in the states if that's what you want to learn about. 
what was the culture like there? I mean, I, I know I know people that were there when you were there, you know, winemakers that I work with and people that have been there not when you were there. And I'm just curious if it was like a very supportive environment. Was it competitive? Were there keggers? Like what, what was what was UC Davis like? Yeah, I, I think with so much in school, it's like um, the experience you have really depends on your cohort. And I don't know what the UC Davis was like two years before I got there or, you know, I've seen it a little bit more in the years that I've left because I've gone back and done talks there and gotten uh, emails from current students and things like that. But um, yeah, it was super supportive. Absolutely not competitive, um, at least among the students. And if it was competitive among the professors, they kept that behind closed doors. I don't think it was. I think everyone, it's a small department and I think... Um, you know, when you're in a small department and you're probably one of the leading schools in the world for that, it's really just about how do you progress the science of it? And yeah, I don't, yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel like it was, it was very hard. It was really hard work. Um, the pace was really, really fast. And, um, yeah, I, I feel like, Again, school, I've always really thrived in school. And um, yeah, it was one of the more challenging, <laughs> challenging things I've done uh, school-wise. So, but yeah, I, I felt very, very, very supportive, supported by my friends there. So, Did you retain any of those relationships? Um, yeah, yeah, I did. I still talk to some people from time to time. We're a little more dis- dispersed. Um, I actually went early on, went into business with a couple of my friends from, um, UC Davis. Um, we had all, once we graduated, we had all, you know, done a few more experiences abroad and, um, internships and things like that. But, um, all were kind of, I think, craving to move back to California around the same time and, and all went into business together to form what we, we'd called the Living Wines Collective. Um, so that was in 2014, um, myself and three friends and, um, were you making wines together? Did you, was it one label? Uh, yeah. So the way we structured it and I actually, you know, even though ultimately we disbanded, I, I still think that this is a really good idea. Um, so I, I, yeah, what we did is, um, you know, we didn't have that many resources. Um, we knew how it, how expensive it was in California to make wine. Um, but we and we all were dedicated to the same kind of winemaking and and more importantly viticultural philosophies and um so we all kind of just put our heads together and we're like well what if we had you know one umbrella business structure because the four of us were all winemakers and liked growing grapes which you know in hindsight i realized maybe going into business with people who have like more diverse skills than you do would have been better. Like, you know, someone who actually loves accounting and finance. (laughs) So, yeah. yeah. But naive as we were, I do think there was some some good substance in this idea. So we had an umbrella um, business and then we had three different labels. um, uh, One called, what was called, so one of the ones that I was kind of in charge of the most along with uh, Diego Roig, who um, works with Leilun and Populous now, um, was called first AMA, but we got a cease and desist for that. 
Then it was called Elysia. And I think we were still trying to figure out the names by the time we all um, parted ways. But so there was that label that was more kind of like uh, Carignan, Neridavola, things that I actually still work with today and are part of the, my core wines. Um, and then uh, Le Lune, which was, you know, Chant, um, Amon Julien and Sam Barron were a little bit more involved in. And it was that was more kind of classic California Cabernet, Cabernet Pinot and Chardonnay. And then Populous, which was this, we really wanted to make wine that was more accessible you know, things that we'd been drinking around the world where we're like, oh, hey, we, you know, we love wine, but we can't afford Burgundy or Barolo or all these things. But there's all these amazing, you know, table wines from the Loire or, you know, all these other regions. And so we wanted to kind of bring that to California. So those were the three labels um, under this one umbrella business. And we made wine out of uh, Chant's parents' basement, they had a big basement that we actually got legally bonded. I mean, I wish I had more photos of the setup there because, um, yeah, we were like hand pitchforking grapes down like a big water pipe into the basement <laughs> <laughs> to ferment. It was really, it was really fun. It was like a, a really sweet moment in life. Yeah. I feel like we all have these kind of wild, wild, a lot of entrepreneurs anyways, we have these kind of wild, wild west moments in the beginning of our, our business career where we look back and we're like, did we really do that? Like, did that happen? Oh, yeah, totally. Like um, driving these old flatbeds like through Sean's parents lived in Orinda, which is a pretty, <laughs> you know, well to do area. And we're like <laughs> driving past these people on their walk, walk to the tennis club, and we're like in an old flatbed full of grapes, like <laughs> try not to take down the trees because it's like a little, you know, it's basically a little neighborhood. But yeah, it's fun. It's fun. So the idea was that all of you guys were making the wine together. So it wasn't like one winemaker, it was four winemakers under these three umbrella kind of labels. Exactly. And, you know, we all had the things that were closer to our heart that, you know, we would make the decisions on. Um, so I think for me, Neridavla was like a big one. So, you know, Shant and Sam weren't telling me, oh, you know, I guess I basically, I guess I had the final say with the winemaking, but we still got to bounce ideas off one another, you know, and, and, uh, Sam probably had the final say with Pinot Noir. Like, you know, we all had the things that we we really liked the most um, or felt the most connected with. So, yeah, the, the winemaking decisions worked out, worked out well. I think it just got to the point where we're like, oh, there's too many, maybe too many other things that none of us want to do. <laughs> so. so it kind of disbanded, not because of anything, you know, disagreements in the winemaking or anything like that it yeah was just... no no disagreements in the winemaking you know I think I think it four people together who are friends and then start running a business it does put some personality it's personalities to the test but yeah nothing nothing I'm gonna get into <laughs> so <laughs> fair yeah fair. yeah but okay so what happens so from there we're we're moving on to what is this when Martha Steuben wine starts or what yeah exactly so you know I we had been you know although we were making natural wines we actually uh really loved aged wines too so 
we had things in barrel that, um, or in, in bottle for sparkling, um, that we'd been making since 2014. So our first vintage together as the living wines collective. And so when we split up, we split up the wine, um, as well. And, you know, I took some of that early sparkling Zinfandel, um, Solera style sparkling, which is still, still a method I use, um, some Nerodavila and some Carignan. Um, so, and then labeled them as Martha Stuman wines, was really debating on the name. Um, but I'd been through so many like naming challenges. And at the end of the day, I was like, you know what, you are really striking out on your own. You don't, you know, this is, this is very much a project that you get to make all the decisions on and, um, yeah, put your name on it. It's fine. That's it's bold. (laughs) (laughs) It is bold. It's also something though. I, um, you know, without going into too much detail, I, I had become a little frustrated too with, um, just, being, you know, certain circumstances of of being a woman in this industry. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to say it loud. This is like a woman owned business. It's got my name on it. It's pretty clear. So yeah. Not a lot of men named Martha. Yeah. I mean, could be, but yeah, not a lot. (laughs) So I mean, that goes back to you saying, you know, that you feel like when you went back to UCA Dav- UC Davis or when you went to UCA Davis that you needed to be as a woman fully equipped. And, you know, I think there's a lot of women who are probably listening to this that can relate in many, many fields where there could be, you know, and, and I hope there's a lot of men listening too. So it's not like, um, you know, about that. But there, it's proven that, you know, women have less opportunities, even if they're more qualified than a man, just because a man's a man. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a thing. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a thing. It's unfortunately a thing. And, you know, I can't, on the other hand, I think, um, you know, I was just, just reading a a few books on, on, uh, women who have struggled in various fields for, uh, you know, in the past. And I think our current state, we've got a lot of room to grow, but I also feel like, you know, there are potentially, I, I potentially got more support as a woman in certain ways too. So like, I don't, you know, it's, it's not, it's not all bad. I don't feel generally too emotional about it. Sometimes I get angry, but for the most part, it's like, okay, this is what it is. Like, let's try to work to fix it. And, um, you know, and it's, like I said, it's, it's not all, it's not all bad news. I've gotten a lot of amazing support from community along the way as well. Like from you. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. You know, uh, I talked on a, a, another podcast recently about when I opened Vitavore. It was, you know, right before the Me Too movement and it ended up being very fortuitous for me, you know, because then all of a sudden women mattered. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So, yeah. So I think all of that, all of that is a, is a good thing um, when those yeah. kind of moments, moments come into, into being in our collective We'll take it. We'll take it. We'll run with it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So back to, you know, the business side of things, because, you know, it, it's, I'm sure very expensive. I'm sure very scary, like striking out on your own. Um, What, what year was this, by the way, that you started Martha Stuman Wine? So, you know, I started, so I wrote a business plan, which later became the, you know, the Living Wines, like very soon after became part of the Living Wines Collective in 20, late 2013, right when I'd gotten back from 
south working in the south of France. And I had kind of already, the wheels had been turning that I wanted to come back and make wine. I had already visited growers before going to do that harvest in the south of France um, to, you know, in before harvest 2013 to purchase fruit in 2014. So a lot of that was kind of in the, in the works. Um, yeah, but then I guess my first you know, release to sell wines, uh, was in 2017. So I was working for those, um, 14, 15 and 16. I was working as an assistant winemaker at Brock and, um, you know, he was, Chris was, was wonderful and supportive and knew I was making wine on the side for my own project. And so, um, yeah, it worked out well, but then I kind of bundled all of those wines together because I made, (laughs) sparkling in 2014 that you know I wanted to age it was it was a process that I wasn't going to be able to release it probably till about 2017 and then some reds that I wanted to age for a little bit um and then in 2016 I made the first vintage of post-flirtation red so all of that got kind of bundled together and hit the market in spring of 2017. Yeah, I remember. Uh, <laughs> so at that point, you were just like renting space in a in a facility and buying fruit. And... Yeah, so I had made, um, you know, I'd made wine in Sean's parents' basement for, for through fourteen and fifteen. <laughs> um, when things started to kind of go south with the Living Wines Collective, um, that was right before harvest of twenty sixteen, and. Um, you know, Chris and I had discussed, and I think this is so important with any working relationship, like what boundaries are. And, um, you know, I think we'd both come to the conclusion that, you know, I wasn't going to be making wine at Brock. He was growing. There wasn't a lot of room. Um, but he was very generous and saw that I was kind of in a pickle and he said, okay, this year you can make wine here. Cause I see that you're kind of, you know, out on the street right before harvest so I just I imagine you just like out on the street with like bundles of of grapes and barrels of wine behind you yeah (laughs) yeah I mean also yeah my yeah (laughs) my living situation I'd been living with one of the one of the the people in the living wines collective and so so I was like okay don't have a winery don't have a place to live but we're still gonna make this happen and you know did a little couch surfing and yeah you know slept slept on the floor at Brock certain late nights and that was fine in the tasting room so I just some of the early things you do to make it work is yeah it's fun to reflect so often that's that's what you have to do in order to make it work totally totally so I did that and I very soon realized um after my first release in 2017 you know while I have you know, some money coming in from the wines that I'd made and bundled that really, and I was kind of in this area where I was either going to have to keep a full-time job and really not grow Martha Stuman wines at all, or I was going to have to find some money to make a little bit more wine, and at least to make it a sustainable amount of wine that I could, you know, support yes support myself enough you know which yeah Uh, so so um took on three minority investors um at the end of harvest in 2017 that was a big I'm not I'm not used to um taking financial risks but um 
that was a big, I mean, I'd started talking to them in the summer before harvest and I was pretty sure that they were going to invest. I hoped, but I went ahead and, you know, just timing wise, bought the fruit, did everything and was like, okay, hopefully this all works out and I can pay for it at the end. And it did come through and they uh, became, you know, uh, minority owners in, uh, October of 2017. So that was given. And gave, they're st- yep. They're still, they're still involved. Mm-hmm. Still involved. Um, yeah. Still own, you know, about gosh, is a, I own about 82%. So they still own, you know, the, did I do my math right? 18% of the business. And they're, they're wonderful too. I, I you know, one in particular who actually was on the phone with today before this podcast is, um, also been an incredible mentor and he gave me some really great advice um, when I was looking for investment and he said, well, what do you, what do you want out of this, out of your, out of this investment? Um, You know, obviously there's the money aspect, but are there other things you want out of it? And I was kind of in the mentality, I felt like it was a, needed to be kind of a paradigm shift in my head. I was in the mentality that, you know, I, have no money. I've never grown up with money. I'm trying to do this hard thing and like kind of felt like, oh, anyone who will like give me money to fund this business, like kind of the feeling of not necessarily being worthy. Um, Even though I knew I was going to work really hard, I've always been a hard worker, but, and he kind of flipped it on its head, which is and I think this is a lot of advice that people give you when you're also going to interview for a job. It's, it's about how does the relationship between you and this other person benefit both parties? Not like, how can I impress them and get them to say yes? It's really, you know, so he said, oh, do you want um, out of this investment? Do you want someone to be an advisor as well? What sort of skills do you want these investors to have? Really take a look at it as if like, you know, the abundance mindset, you can get what you want if you know what you want sort of thing. So that was really helpful for me. Sounds like really great advice. Yeah, it's really great, really good advice. <laughs> Definitely what I needed to hear at the time. So, so what does your operation look like now from two from then from two thousand seventeen? Yeah, so I hired my um, first. Well, I actually hired two employees at once. I was going to hire my first employee, and I had kind of mapped this all out in a business plan. I'd done about a. I think I'd done a seven or eight year business plan, getting that much further out than that really starts to get too murky. Even probably seven or eight years is hard to project um, out, but at least intentions of, you know, when you want to hire your first employee and all that stuff and how you want to grow. And um, so, yeah, I was going to hire, I needed some help in the cellar because I nearly killed myself in 2017. I mean, yeah, my boyfriend at the time, he was like, I'm going to stay home from work because you've been awake for 21 hours and you're about to drive a 24 foot flatbed for like another five hours. So he was like, I can't drive it because I don't know how, but I'll be in the passenger seat, like singing to you, (laughs) uh, asking you onion surveys, like whatever I can do to keep you awake and entertained. So um, that was a wake up call. I was like, okay, I need to hire someone in the cellar, but I also felt like I needed some help with marketing and sales. And so um, this, uh, particular investor advisor I was chatting with him and he was doing some kind of business coaching with me and he said well 
what would it be like if you just hired both and didn't have to choose? Like, what, what would that mean for you? And again, another great piece of advice, which is that, you know, hire out for the future a little bit um, and uh, try to figure out what you need and then try to find the money for it. So, um, yeah, first two employees. And then now um, we have, let's see, it's myself, my assistant winemaker, Tim, who was one of my first employees. Um, He's just wonderful. Uh, We work so well together. It's a dream. Um, uh, Head of marketing and and DTC. um, uh, uh, Digital content manager. Um, a, di- a distribution sales manager and a part-time um, customer uh, service um, for the for our direct sales. So, yeah, five and a half people, including myself. So, feels good. And I just got to the point where I'm able to, you know, offer full benefits for people and 401k, and it feels really, really good. I'm still trying to get myself into the position where um, I feel fully compensated for what I do but we'll get there (laughs) you're you you've I feel like you've accomplished a lot I I mean I think we forget that you haven't been around for 10-15 years I mean Martha Steuben Wines hasn't been around for Mm -hmm. 10-15 years so I think you have some really solid growth uh you mentioned earlier you know like when we were talking about yeast you know grapes are magic and you know for me I feel like there's also some winemakers that just have a little magic to them and you know I love your wines (laughs) And you make some really amazing single varietal wines. So just like straight up one varietal wine, like 100% Narodavo, 100% Carignan. But you also do these blends and, you know, blends of grapes. And I just kind of want to know your approach behind that. Like how much of that do you think is science or intuition or talent or magic? Because they're they're special. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, blending is just so much fun and such a challenge and um it's something um you know I think if you love to cook or or even just I don't know create when I was younger I was like always making art and you know that's part part of that it's all kind of like composing things in various ways and so um yeah that's what what blending is is you you know, you have all these different components and maybe while you were fermenting all these specific lots, you kind of had in mind what, what they might bring to the table. And, um, you know, I, I love a single vineyard, single varietal wine that feels really complete, but I also think, um, you know, let's make the best wine. And if certain wines taste better blended together, or at least let's see if they do, um, then I think that's a really fun exercise. And I've, I've recently started, um, blending vintages as well so maybe it's a single vineyard single varietal wine like our Negromaro from Briccarelli Ranch which was formerly known as Benson Ranch but that's um a vineyard I've leased and farmed since 2015 and I just started to realize it's this aged rosé and I just really started to like layering it a little bit more um but it's an expression of a very small plot you know very specific grapes um So that's another way I think that's really fun to blend. But the idea is, you know, how can you just hit like all these different elements? So acidity and, um, you know, aromatics, perfume or uh, and body. Like for me, 
you know, I think there's these shiny things when you're blending, which are like the aromatics of a wine, but those are going to change over time. And hopefully they're always beautiful. But for me, um, the texture is the hardest nut to crack. And that's something that the wine will be the foundation of the wine forever, as long as it ages before it's consumed. So, yeah. Cool. So you mentioned, you know, that you're farming and leasing, um, you know, vineyards, vines, so you can farm them yourself. And I know in California, it's it's very tough to own your own land. It's just everything's so expensive. And uh, we talked to Krista Scruggs the other day, and that's what got her in Vermont is because she could afford to own land there. Uh, so I'm just curious. You also mentioned earlier that, you know, you don't come from a wine family, even though you're up in that area. If you could pick any winery family, and I know you love your, your God-given family, <laughs> or, mm-hmm. but what family would you have been born into that owns a winery? What wine family would be your... Oh, I would... I mean, from those that I know, I would have to say, um, you know, my experience in Sicily working for Coase, it's the closest, like, I don't know, thing I've felt like to, to family in the wine industry. So in particular, Giusto Occupanti, who's um, just, I don't know, just an incredible human being that one of those people who even, you know, as the years I met him in 2012, when I was um, working harvest there, even, you know, as time goes on, just somebody that even if you don't tell them, they give you inspiration, you know, you just somehow conjure up this, the feeling of, you know, who they are and what their spirit is. And it's inspiring to have been able to spend time with them in your life. So, um, also certainly the most welcoming everybody at, at, at Coase and, and, and also at Okipinti, they were, they were close, um, you know, they live close to one another and we would have dinners together, but, um, yeah, just incredibly welcoming. And the type of, I think the real test too is some of the tough love that I think I got. Um, Cause that's like, for me, that feels like family. I definitely grew up with a very loving family, but you know, my, especially my dad never brushed anything under the rug. If it was like, Hey, that is not, that was like pretty subpar. <laughs> so <laughs> They weren't going to sugarcoat anything. And I, and I appreciated that. Um, I think, um, you know, Justa was incredibly supportive and, and both he and Ariana were like, when are you going to start making your own wine? Like, what are you doing? What are you, <laughs> what are you waiting for? <laughs> like only, you know, kind of, but in a way that was both inspiring and also kind of like get with the program. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I also feel like a huge part of your business is the marketing and you always have these great ideas, you know, with the the playlist pairings with your wine. And I just saw, you know, recently on your Instagram, and I'm going to be hitting you up about this later, about these little prickly things that you're doing. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, is there ever been anything that you've seen or tasted that you were like, ah, I wish I got there first? <laughs> like some sort of trend. Oh, yeah, I think about that. And I do have to sometimes talk my down, myself down about that. Like, like for instance... Um, the little prickly things. We're talking about these little um, uh, 355 mil bottles that are like beer bottle size that are paquettes. Um, I, you know, when I first tasted paquette, it was Wild Ark Farm who, you know, for as far as I know, brought paquette to the U.S. and like, you know, uh, revived this um, tradition. 
um, a new. Do you want to explain what Paquette yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. Paquette is um, it's this really cool product that, you know, was traditionally probably drunk more by um, like the common folk and certainly the, the workers who worked at wineries and had access to pressed grape skins. But the idea is that um, after you've used your grapes to make wine, whether or not it's, um, you know, fresh grapes that were pressed for white wine um, and not fermented yet, or red wines that were fermented on the skins, um, but you put water back over them and re-ferment. There's still a little bit of sugar in them. There's some tannin. There's some acidity. Um, and it's kind of like this diluted wine product that you then bottle and it ferments a little bit and bottle. Um, and it's delicious. You know, it ranges anywhere from probably like four to 7% alcohol. And it's a way to reuse something that you were, you know, that was going to go out to the compost pile. It's like one more use before it goes out. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like, what are the old vegetables in the bottom of your fridge you're going to make soup out of? <laughs> so, which really resonates with me. I mean, that sort of, again, the Italian culture is like, you know, every little scrap can be used for something. It's just about how to get creative enough to, to make it taste good. And um, so, yeah, when I tasted uh, the piquettes from Wild Ark, I was like, oh, man, this is amazing. But also this feeling, which I don't, I don't know if I should, you know, we should all feel this way, but it's like, oh, well, but this person did this and I don't want to copy them. And it's like, well, yeah, but it's still a very, very small, minuscule thing. And it's this thing that like, you know, it's a great use of the energy that's gone into farming. <laughs> and like, we should all be doing this. Every, every wine house should have a piquette or should have a vinegar program or a distillation program. Like all of these, why are we not using these scraps per se? And so, yeah, I have felt that way and, and kind of held off. And then this past year, our compost bin didn't arrive in time. And so we had these pressed grapes. And if you just leave pressed grapes in a bin at a winery, you're going to get fruit flies up the wazoo. So it was like, okay, the only way to not get fruit flies is to put water in this and cover it and make piquette before the compost bin gets here. So it was more like, well, I guess I'll try to be a good roommate because I work at a shared facility. Um, and, and then it was really fun. It was like, oh, piquettes are pretty, they're really fun to make because they're not supposed to be any one thing. They're not supposed to be great wine. And so it's like, yeah, I love making wines that are really, really challenging um, and intellectual, but it's also fun to just be like, we're just going to put this in barrel and see what happens. <laughs> so, yeah. I can't wait to try them. I'm sure they're delicious. And yeah, piquettes definitely are, you know, coming out of the woodworks. So everybody's everybody's dipping their toe, I think. And I think it is a great, like, regenerative way to use yeah. those pressed grapes. And they're delicious. Totally. Um, so, uh, what's next? Where do you, where do you see yourself going in the next few years? Where, where's, where's Martha going? Yeah, that is a perfect question for this moment in my life. Um, I was, I say this kind of as a joke, kind of a serious, I was reading an Atlantic article, uh, the other day about how to have a gracious midlife crisis. So <laughs> I've been like, yeah, I feel like I have, um, again, I kind of, 
I wrote that business plan in 2013, you know, for the most part have actually achieved it, which I think is awesome. And also, you know, um, pretty rare, but kind of, you know, my, the dream that I've had ever since I was, uh, 22 at that farm in Italy was to create a place in California. It's just so expensive to, um, really do some experiments in terms of what, um, you know, how can we continue to push the needle on environmentally responsible farming? Um, and also again, that early, those early ideas of the living wine collective, which was like, how can people with fewer means who are passionate about making wine and growing grapes enter into this? Like, how can we create a little more structure around this like collective um, idea, those are still really beautiful ideas for me. And I don't know how to get there. And I'm, but I'm thinking about it a lot. And so hopefully can contribute in it, even if it's a small way, even if I don't have a, you know, full on functioning, uh, research farm, um, that, that I would love to incorporate that. But right now it's actually, you know, this year and into the next, it's about, about trying to take a little break and a step back from the business because it's been I love it I love that it is part of my life and um that there's not a lot of boundaries between my you know uh my personal life and my professional life but I I um I think especially through the pandemic and forest fires and having a child I'm I'm a little tired right now so I'm going to take a little break and kind of not, you know, not take a break and step back, but take a break from putting my foot on the gas pedal for a year or so. That makes a lot of sense. And um, I think you have accomplished a lot in a, in a very short amount of time. And, you know, perspective does go a long way and recharge your batteries. And I know you're not going anywhere. And I know that you can get to where you want to go. And I definitely see the the path towards that kind of collective winemaking experience. And I, I really hope you can pull it off or I know you can pull it off mm-hmm. and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I really appreciate you talking to me and hearing all these really great parts of your, your story and your life. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time and yeah, letting me speak so, um, so candidly about everything. Mm-hmm.